This week on Writers Inc. If the book isn't amazing, you could spend all the money in the world on marketing and it's just not it's just not going to happen, right? So, my book, I always tell the story, my first book when I was 19, I give it a 2 out of 10, the rough draft. My editor literally took it to like a 9 out of 10. It was that dramatic. So, you need to put your budget into the actual work, the actual book, and then if there's some left over, then put it into marketing. But if not, you need to basically put your effort into the marketing and keep that budget for the actual book. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflush. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writers, Inc. Kevin, you had something exciting to tell the group about, didn't you? I, I do. Uh, I, so I have a new book coming out, but it's not just any new book. Uh, it's a book that I wrote entirely for my paid Substack folks uh, over the past couple of months, uh, just as a, a kind of a test and exercise to see how that would go. Went great. And so now the the book itself is called God Mode, and it is available for pre-order right now. It's releasing uh, December 30th, uh, but you can find it at bookstoread.com slash God Mode. And that's all one word. So go buy it. Cool. So did you actually write this on Substack, like a serial thing? Yes. Yeah. I serialized it chapter by chapter. Uh, first time I've ever done anything like that. I, I, you know, I was kind of nervous about it because... Kind of, I don't have a problem showing people like, you know, the behind the scenes on stuff necessarily, but sometimes I'll get pretty far along in a story, decide, okay, I want to change element A or B, and then I got to go rewrite that. And I, and, uh, I didn't want to have to do that with, with this in particular. And I'm hoping everything is really cohesive. I mean, I kind of read through it, you know, edit, I, I was editing as I went so that I wouldn't have to edit the entire thing at the end. Uh, but the, you know, each piece of it kind of came out, I think pretty good. I mean, it's, it, it's a cohesive story. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what the reviews say, but, um, I'm excited about it. First time I've done that. So it won't be the it's last. Fun, I'm going to, I've got it? something else in mind too. Yeah. How many weeks did that take, Kevin? How long did it take? So there were 13, well, there was 12 chapters total in a 13th, like, uh, I do something called a note at the end, uh, mm. which is like an afterward kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, it's not a, it's not a super long book. I mean, it's novella length, probably like 30,000 words okay. uh, tops. So, um, yeah, I mean, it came out, came out great. I think, I mean, it was just, cool. uh, I decided, I just decided one day, Hey, why don't I do something in Substack that, that paid subscribers can, can participate in. And I did get some feedback and comments. People really liked it. You know, they were excited about it and, I did AI artwork for it throughout. So each each installment had its own unique piece of AI art, which I'm thinking about bundling into like a companion at some point. And uh, if I do, I don't know. I, I don't want to have to answer yes to Amazon's question about, you know, did AI have anything to do with this? I, I, I just I just resent being asked. So maybe I won't <laughs> sell it on Amazon. I don't know. The cat's out of the bag. I, I, I don't know anybody that's actually answered answered yes to that question yet. Like, do, do you guys know anybody who's actually said yes just to see what happens? I, like, yeah. don't, am, I'm not saying that, yes. Nothing Does happens. Amazon show up at your doorstep with like no. Boston yeah. Robotics? Yes, or maybe something. later. No, man, I'm just maybe worried later. about what's coming. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think anything's going to happen now, but I think down the road, Amazon's going to do something stupid because that's what Amazon does. And it's going to screw everybody who said yes to that question. That's my, that's my beef with it. But yeah, you're probably right. You know, so did you, did you plot out this novel as you, as, did you plot out What's this that? novel as you went? Like being a serial no. thing? Did you, did you, did you know where you were going with the story or? No, nope, okay. I pants the whole thing. Um, I, I kind of had a general idea of where I wanted to end up, but I didn't, uh, even the ending was kind of vague to me until the, until it happened. And, uh, I had a lot of fun with it, actually. I mean, it was pro it was kind of a liberating way to to write a book because um, I felt like 
for one, it's one of it's when I started with this book, I started using uh, Microsoft Word's little text to speech thing, and I used the one on the iPad, which has a really clean, natural sounding voice, fairly natural. And so that's how I would edit is, you know, once I was done with it, I'd play it back, read along with it. And that helped me catch typos and other errors. I'd also help kind of keep the story fresh in my head. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was how I handled the, the editing side of it. So it's kind of experimental all around, but I, I think it was a good experiment. We'll see what the dollars say. So far, One of us. Uh, pre-orders have been pretty good. Yeah. Did you, um, I, I, I'm sorry, I got a bunch of questions on this because I've never... <laughs> I've never actually tried this before. So when, when you wrote or when you put it out as a novel, did you go back and adjust anything that you had done? You know, like nope. change anything from the, the beginning? You, so you left it as is. Straight. I left it as is um, for better or worse. I mean, I, th I think it, you know, it, it has cohesion as a story. I didn't think it necessarily needed a whole lot of looping back to edit. I mean, like I said, I did do a lot of that as I wrote it. Maybe mm -hmm. the early chapters, I probably should have gone back and looked at it again because there were things I changed in my process after like chapter three, but, uh, I, I kind of trust it. I, I, I trust that I did okay with it and people will let me know, I guess, if I didn't, but I, you know, it's not so very different from things I've done in the past. It's just that I've never shared that as I went before. And, uh, Substack is this thing that I've kind of fallen in love with. I want, I've just really, there's, I want to figure out all kinds of ways to use it. I've figured out several ways to use it. Like when I did the announcement of the pre-order, so Substack lets you insert a link that is the paywall portion of a, of a post and everything above that is available for everyone to see and everything below it is only for the people who subscribe. So what I did was write a post and said, and told everyone, here's the pre-order, here's the link, you know, go, go check it out. If you want to, you know, join the paid Substack, click here. And then below that, I started the paywall portion and I gave the book to for free to everybody who had been a supporter in that email. So they were, they were able to go download it for free from my, uh, my book funnel link, uh, which was hidden by the paywall. So I was able to do all that in one post and one email, which is very handy. <laughs> that That is very cool. Yeah. All right. JP, what is in the news? Uh, okay. So in the news, uh, we have Sports Illustrated published articles by fake AI generated writers. So Sports Illustrated, managed by the Arena Group, has been found to use AI generated author profiles and headshots for publishing content on their website. The content, including articles and bio uh, biographies published under these fake authors at Sports Illustrated and The Street, uh, another area, Arena Group publication, is suspected to be AI generated, uh, though it has been denied by the publisher. Uh, the undisclosed use of AI in journalism is a pretty big ethical concern, uh, and it questions about media integrity. Uh, so this was actually an article from Christine. Oh, man, this Ooh. this killed. Next thing you're going to tell me is that the pictures in the, the swimsuit edition are fake or airbrushed or something. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't know. No, yeah, there's a Spanish marketing company that came out with an AI influencer who is 100% fake, but was convincing enough that someone called up the agency to ask for a date with her. So there nice. you go. <laughs> there's well, a, got, there's, there's actually a Japanese newscaster that's actually been around for years, and she's entirely AI. It's never there, mm -hmm. There's never been an actual human, and, and everyone knows it and still flocks to this, per, this, this entity's like Instagram or whatever the japanese version of instagram is isn't there a pop star too like that either japan or china yeah i it's think like taylor swift she's an ai yeah taylor swift is these guys wasn't they're, there, they're not actually what? the first to get busted for this right didn't cnet get no. in trouble for this not too long ago for posting fake yeah, articles fake, i don't yeah know. fake articles yeah i don't i don't I know this, the first i heard I of wouldn't it was be sports surprised. Illustrated. Yeah, yeah but it wouldn't shock me yeah if uh yeah. So, yeah, these articles were written by writers whose biographies and photos are made up. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're How was it discovered? AI, but there's a very good question. I just know everybody's been talking about it this week. So, it's like, we're yeah. going to talk about this. <laughs> Man, I don't even know entirely how I feel about it because, on the one hand, as long as the news itself, as long as the story itself is not, like, it, it needs to still be factual. Yeah. The fact that it's written by AI doesn't bother me. And the fact that they even created a persona for it, like 
that's not unheard of either. Um, you know, without the AI component to it, you know, this sort of thing actually has been done for years, like, uh, or for decades, centuries, really, uh, like, uh, Dear Abby, for example, is not a person, but is a group of people who write that column. So it's not the, it's not the, the, the part that bothers me about this and the part that I feel is unethical about it isn't so much that they had an AI do it. I, it, it's the trying, if they were trying to hide this and make it is appear as if this right. was an actual human being. Now we're starting to kind of get into a weird territory. But maybe yeah. not. I mean, I don't know. Again, it's been done for years. Why does AI change the equation on this, I guess? I'm, I'm going to get an AI. I just start reading the news for me so I don't have to read it anymore. That's what I do. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, next, uh, this was an article from The Hot Sheet, and it was talking about some Amazon trend reports. Uh, and this one was reader interest shifting from um, – paranormal romance towards more of a fantasy romance uh i just found this interesting because i know that paranormal romance is a highly popular category uh it involves things like shifters and vampires uh and really there's this growing interest in fantasy romance and romantic fantasy kind of um decreasing this interest in paranormal romance as it as it moves along uh, a lot of this is actually driven by uh tiktok it seems like and that there's this term on tiktok romanticy uh that is gaining traction <laughs> And so uh, for those that maybe like to publish under the paranormal romance, maybe this is something you start to look at. Uh, how can you uh, reshape or reform or, uh, you know, produce something that is more along the lines of fantasy romance, if that's something you like to chase after? Romanticy, I was heavily involved in all through my high school Great. years and my 20s. Good, another story <laughs> from Kevin. I'm so excited. I'm just wondering if this trend, because I've heard this romanticy term everywhere in the last couple of weeks, and I'm wondering if it's like the Rebecca Yarrow's fourth wing tide, because that mm -hmm. was huge and that would, I assume, would be classified as romanticy. But yeah, I've been seeing Is a lot it? more of that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I've been seeing those books all over the place uh you know not just at like barnes and noble or something but like going through the airport they were every every store that sold books had like a big huge display of those so that's interesting i didn't know what they were i thought they were pure fantasy romanticy yeah romanticy. i read the first one because i had to know what everybody was reading and they are much heavily more uh erotic romance than what i would usually read in fantasy so yeah so is that it is that what romanticy is is more erotic romance in a fantasy setting or i don't know i think it's more romance heavy fantasy but yeah there, it was definitely spicy so <laughs> yeah okay all right i could see it book talk does like their spicy spicy genres. uh right. last up in the news <laughs> Uh, a booker judge admits it's nearly impossible to read all the books. Uh, so Robert Webb, a celebrity judge for the Booker Prize, uh, publicly admitted uh, the difficulty of reading the entire um, list of 163 books in seven months. Uh, many professional readers, including literary judges, often determine their opinion of a book's quality uh, within the first 50 pages, uh, suggesting that the essence of great writing becomes clear early in the narrative. Uh, some suggest that the number of books assigned to the judges should be reduced uh, to ensure comprehensive coverage, either by spreading the titles more evenly among judges or by limiting the total number of books considered. Have any of you guys ever been a judge on something like this? No. Yes. Not, not this yes. one, but you yeah, I've, I've done one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've done it. I've done it too. And like, I know like we got handed hundreds of books on a list yeah. to try and read within a year. And like, I don't read that many books, period, you know, during the course of a year, Yeah. you know, so like, this is a definitely an industry wide problem. I, I don't know what the solution is. I know for me personally, when I went through that list, my first step was to go to Amazon, figure out how many reviews they got, what the average star rating was. And then I used that to figure out which books on that list I actually wanted to read. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. which, you know, that, but you know, that was my particular process. The other 10 judges on the, on the contest probably had their own. So everybody's kind of off doing their own thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would read the first chapter and if, if the first chapter grabbed me, then, then I'd, I'd finish it. But it, you know, you can eliminate a lot of books uh, pretty quickly if the first chapter doesn't grab you. That's, that was my process. I was part of a local 
uh, judging for the shorter works, but we had a large panel of judges and the works were in the hundreds that were submitted, but we were all given under like, I want to say like under 15 or so to review and we would determine and give ratings for those pieces and then they would conglomerate all of them and then there'd be the secondary round and i think that that's the most appropriate thing to do to respect people's time and to give each piece kind of its due uh i think telling someone to read 163 books is wild <laughs> i think that's impossible well, that's, that's in addition to what they actually want to read too, right? Uh, yeah. Most most people that are judges, they're, they're on that, that list because they like to read. So they're, they're not going to put aside the stuff they want to read in order to read their, their homework. Um, yeah. So I don't think anybody's going through this. I, I, I noticed Goodreads announced their, their winners today for the, the Goodreads contest. And I think this was the first year where they actually didn't allow write-ins. Um, so they've changed things too. So I don't, and, and I couldn't find anything, you know, where they basically explained how they determined what their initial nominee list was. Um, so I don't know if that was based on sales or average ratings or, you know, some weird mishmash of, of everything. Um, but, you know, there's, there's somebody behind the scenes basically determining what that shortlist should be. And nobody's really explaining how they got to it, which kind of bothers me. Yeah. I can't say I'm surprised. Like, I, I've never thought that anyone could possibly read all those books that they have for the contest. So, you know, not surprising, but yeah, something to think about for sure. This episode is brought to you by Autocrit. One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. Autocrit takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie-cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level. So you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. Hi, this is JD Barker. I've used Autocrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to autocrit.com slash JD to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to Autocrit for sponsoring the show. All right. And with that, JD, who's up this week? This week, we've got Tyler Wagner. He's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and podcast host with over half a million followers on the different social media platforms. He's also the founder of Authors Unite, where he helps authors learn how to become profitable and maximize their impact through publishing, editing, writing, uh, and just launching the proper distribution for their books. Um, very informative. This is going to be fun. Tyler Wagner. You are the founder of Authors Unite, where you help authors learn how to become profitable and maximize their impact. So I am excited to pick your brain about that. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped. Uh, I'm obviously, I'm very excited to talk about it too. Uh, 12 years I've been running it actually. Pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. That's some kind of milestone. Yeah. So, <laughs> You know a lot about resources and communities focused on uh, becoming better writers. What are some of your favorites? Um, yeah, resources is really, that's kind of what Authors Unite is, is when I was younger, I wrote my first book when I was 19, and I realized that there just there was all these missing puzzle pieces. There was no like one company that handled everything, right? The editing, publishing, and the marketing. So Authors Unite, how we've built the business is through partnerships. And because of that, I've kind of brought all those resources under our roof. So I'd say like PR agencies, there's uh, when you're an author, after you become a bestseller, your next move is to hire a PR agency and basically have them pitch you so that you're consistently in the media uh, ideally daily, but if not weekly or at least monthly, uh, just to stay top of mind. Right. So I have, I've probably talked to a few thousand PR agencies and I believe that I have a, like the top five that I typically refer to the most. So that's one of the top resources I'd say. Um, I have a guy that helps with Amazon reviews. His name's Matt. He can help authors get hundreds to thousands of Amazon reviews. He's a great resource. And if, if you want any of these people's contact and stuff, just ask me after and I can we can send it to everybody. Sounds good. Uh, 
so um and then also there are these facebook groups as well and that's actually what i did when i first uh started there's facebook groups that are specifically for authors that when you come out with a book and it's discounted or free you can post in those groups you can normally get a little traction in there they're kind of it's a little spammy at this point because there's so many, yeah. but nonetheless, it's free visibility. So it's not a bad idea. The email list that I was talking about, if you go to Google and type in ebook promotion sites, there's thousands of them. And basically you pay them a fee and they'll mail out about your book. Those are really cool. Um, ghostwriting resources. I think those are great. We do ghostwriting. There's a lot of other companies that do it too. Um, so yeah, I think if you're an author... I think it's all out there. It's just kind of hard to find it all and piece it together. So a company like ours, we've kind of done that work for you is what I would say. Yeah. And that can take you a long time to learn and a lot of mistakes uh, yes. to do that on your own for sure. Especially if you don't have an author community and you're out there trying to do it by yourself. It's a difficult ladder to climb. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about Facebook groups, which which is great. And, you know, authors always want to know how do they expand and grow their platform without any ad spend or without any risk? Besides Facebook gro- groups, do you have any other thoughts on how you can do that? Oh, so that's a, that's how I grew my whole business. So and, and it would work for an author with their book or for any business. So what I recommend with that is and I'll get more detailed, but from a macro level, you want to think who are people that have complementary services or topics, you could say, if it's a book, um, as you, right? So for us, I'll use us as an example just to start. So like our core focus in the beginning was book marketing. So we basically, our first target was book publishers. We reached out to literally, and I'm not exaggerating, every book publisher in the world that speaks English. We reached out to all of them. And with a message that basically just said, um, potential collaboration, we think there might be ways we can collaborate. And a little different than that, but that's kind of the gist. And we built relationships with them at scale and now they refer us their authors to handle the marketing. So uh, my reason to bring that up is it works for a business, but say you have a book on spirituality, let's say your book's about spirituality you could reach out to all the yoga instructors, right? And you could find them on LinkedIn, Google search, uh, Facebook, Instagram, like the keyword yoga instructor could be, you could find hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them could be found. And then you could reach out to them, build relationships. They have their email lists or lists of um, customers, and then they could promote your book to their list. Yeah. And it's all free, right? It's just relationships. And, 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 you know, in some cases, right, they're going to want it reciprocated, obviously. So you also have a list. So in some cases, maybe you could promote that person's work. Say one of them comes out with a book too, you promote their book to your list. So it's this like scaling reciprocity of uh, referrals and affiliate, basically. Yeah, I think that's great. That's something indie authors have been doing for a long time is reaching out to other authors in their genre for for swaps. So I like that idea of like, what else is there out there that you may be able to uh, target like yoga instructors or whatever your book is? That's a great idea. Um, How about on the opposite end of that? What do you think is the best money an author can spend? Oh, okay. I like this question. Um, Honestly, I'd say an editor. Because the thing is, if you, if the book isn't amazing, you could spend all the money in the world on marketing and it's just not, it's just not going to happen. Right. So I, an editor changed my book. I always tell the story. My first book when I was 19, I give it a two out of 10, the rough draft. My editor literally took it to like a nine out of 10. It was that dramatic. So you need to put your budget into the actual work, the actual book. And then if there's some left over, then put it into marketing. But if not, you need to basically put your effort into the marketing and keep that budget for the actual book. Yeah, that, that's what that, that makes sense. And there are a lot of editors out there now. Do you have any tips on how to find a good editor to know that you're going to get yeah. your money's worth? Yeah, for sure. Well, so 
Okay. So an editor is our, and I'm not trying to just promote my own company, but I'll, I'll just say this and then I'll, I'll answer the question further is an editor was one of our other targets, right? So we literally in our database probably have, I don't know, 10,000 or so editors in there. And they're vetted in the sense of like, I have all their portfolios and I have, we've done over 3000 books now. And like, we you we kind of have our top editors that our customers are always happy with. So that's one way. It's like, well, we partner with editors. They refer to us. We use them at scale. And so we would not be a bad option in that pursuit. But I think there's a lot of other platforms out there like um, uh, Upwork and stuff that they also have like ratings. Um, so that could be, I think there's, it's called like Readsy. Readsy I think a lot yeah. of people, um, find good uh, work there. Um, and, and I think what it really comes down to too is, so you can use these platforms, but regardless of them, it's, it, is it the right editor for you? You know, and, and a good way to, to do, to figure that out is have them do like a sample uh, page or something. And a lot of editors will be willing to do that. Um, so I would do that. And also is their past work similar to your genre, right? So all that has to line up plus their past ratings too. Um, Hopefully that's helpful, but it's not just based on the ratings because they might not even, they might've edited children's books. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You got to make sure it's for your stuff too. Yeah, I agree with that. And a lot of people don't know, uh, like to ask for a sample page. So that's good advice. Most editors will do that. Um, So now you've got your editor, you're ready to publish. There are lots of different pathways to publishing and it seems to be continually changing. What are your thoughts on the different methods of publishing? Yeah. Okay. So, and I will say, I will preface it with this. We work with all types of publishers. They are our number one partners. So before I answer this, I want to say I love all publishers and I think they're all great. (laughs) Disclaimer. (laughs) Yes. Um, But I will say that I think the value of a traditional publisher has pretty dramatically gone down um just in this like the only reason i would see you going for a traditional publisher now is for the brand right like it's still very credible and cool and they do have some relationships with like um distribution and so, like bookstores and stuff so there is some value out there but you know they'll take 80 90 percent of the royalty and it's like for what they're, they're not doing marketing for you. Like they're not. So I don't know. I don't, I don't see the value in them much anymore uh, in comparison to the other options. So I think hybrids are great. Uh, I really like Morgan James publishing. I think they're awesome. Um, Trying to think of some other really good, there's so many good hybrids we've worked with, but I I just think it's kind of like a good middle ground, Right. They'll take a they'll take a higher percentage than if you self-publish, but they also give enough support that I think makes it valid. So I like that. And then self-publishing, though, you know, no matter what you choose, you're going to have to do the same amount of marketing because none of them do marketing. Right. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's just the, the truth of the matter is publishers are very good at publishing books, but they don't market books. So if you self-publish, you get to keep the most royalty and you're going to have to do the same amount of marketing as if you were only getting 10%. So in my mind, I would either self-publish or hybrid. That that would be my choice. Yeah. And you're absolutely right about the marketing, unless you're one of the top 5% of trad authors, right? You're not getting that, mar- that marketing money behind you. So yep. I'm curious, what do you consider some best practices for book marketing for hybrid and in indie authors and maybe you know, trad, yeah. uh, authors lower on the totem pole. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'll, the formula we, and this is probably what we would, I'd say we know best is, is the marketing side of books just because we've done so many of them now. And so we've had a lot of time to like test different things out. And the formula is pretty clear across the board now, and it can be done whether you have a budget, excuse me, whether you have a budget or not. Right. So if you don't have a budget, you got to, you know, get on the ground and do it yourself and put in the hours. If you have a budget, you can hire somebody like us and we'll do it for you. But basically step one is definitely making the book as good as it can be. Right. So hiring that editor, an editor is almost a form of marketing spend, right? Because it, 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 and same with the book cover, right? The whole packaging, everything that is, that comes first. So do that. 
And then secondarily, um, doing like some sort of book launch to hit a bestseller list. So hitting any of the lists is great. Obviously, the major ones like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, they're more credible to the public. But even if it's just Amazon bestseller, it's better than no bestseller. And I think it's great. So I would do that. Once you have the bestseller accolade, um, then you want to hire a PR firm to help you leverage the accolade like we had mentioned earlier on. And then getting as many Amazon reviews as possible uh, as well. And there's ways to do that. You could do that just through basic networking or hire a company that has like a database of readers, uh, like Kirkus reviews, stuff like that. But we found once you get over a thousand reviews, which is not an easy thing to do, but once you get over a thousand reviews on Amazon, the conversions for Amazon ads skyrocket. Like, Mm. and it's because the trust on that page is now built So when you drive cold traffic to it, it will actually convert. And what most people do that I think is it's out of uh, it's like a misstep is they try to do Amazon ads and all these other marketing efforts before. And they have like five Amazon reviews. Yeah, it's not work like and the only people that are buying a book that has five Amazon reviews is somebody that already knows you. Right. Because if not, they're going to hit that page and they're going to be like, what is that? Like, there's no trust here. Like, I can't buy this. There, nobody, like, it looks like five people bought the book, you know? And yeah. that's okay. I'm not uh, saying anything. It's just like, you don't want to waste your money on that yet. You want to focus on building that page up with testimonials, pictures of people with the book, uh, your author bio, like that Amazon page needs to be pristine. And one of the things of that is at least getting over a hundred reviews, but ideally over a thousand. And then um, a lot of authors don't like to hear this, but the truth is the goal of all of this is just to get the book in as many hands as possible. And in reality, whether it's 99 cents or it's free or it's 20 bucks, the goal is still the same. Get it in as many hands as possible. So in the beginning, the recommendation honestly is make it free or 99 cents, like send Mm -hmm. the PDF version out to a hundred thousand people in a message. You know, I don't just people need to read it. And and a lot of authors, because they spend years writing it, they're so hesitant to give it away for so cheap or for free because they're like, took me two years to write this. I got to charge for it. And I'm like, I agree. But first, get people talking about it, then charge for it later. Um, And so that's you. there's a lot of different ways. But if you can get 100,000 people to read your book, I don't care how you do it. If you can get them to do it, you'll know if your book is going to be successful or not. That's really good advice. And because I think it's hard, um, especially in writing, to see your book as a product because it's it's emotional and it's art. So it's hard to separate that emotion and that yeah. time from I need a loss leader right for my for my business. So yes. that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, one more thing I want to drill down into there. You said hitting lists. You put you had the New York Times list on there. Do you think yeah. that's possible for indie authors to hit? Because there's we debate that all the time. Oh, it great. It was okay. at one time, and now I wonder what's oh, uh, no, no. what's so the possibility? It is it is possible, but it's very unlikely. So mm-hmm. um I, if I were to give it a percentage chance, I'd it's between one and five, probably one percent. <laughs> I think that sounds about right. <laughs> But um, but no, I mean, it, so to be clear, it is possible, but it's it's so unlikely that when um when clients come to us and they want to hit that list, if they're not with a traditional publisher, we will not take them on as a client, yeah, because it's just not right. Because it's just the chances, the budget you need, unless you're already a celebrity, but the budget you need with if you're not a celebrity is like two hundred to five hundred k to have a chance. And if you're not with a traditional publisher, there is basically no chance. So why waste six figures? It's yeah. not, you know, Wall yeah. Street Journal is a way better one to go after. Yeah. And I think that's good for indie authors to hear. Like that's not an expectation you should be having as an indie author. So I appreciate your perspective on that. Yeah. And just to say a little deeper on it, and I don't mind saying this. Uh, and look, I think it's great because it's a brand thing and a lot of people respect it. But the reality is it's an editorial list. It's yeah. not even based on like sales is like 10% of the equation. It's not even, whereas wall street journal, what I love about it. And I think it's gaining more and more respect because it truly is. If, if you are the top 10 most sold nonfiction or fiction, they have a fiction list too. In a week you're on the list. 
Mm-hmm. That's what a bestseller list should be, right? Yeah. And if you want to hit it on the nonfiction side, you need about anywhere like four or 5,000 minimum in a week. On the fiction, you need about, you know, <laughs> like 20,000 or something. It's so much more competitive. But regardless, that's what a bestseller list is. It's not some people in a room being like, oh, this guy is our friend or and I don't know how they do it. So I'm not, I'm making some of something, but it's like, <laughs> I've seen books that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies in a week and they miss the list. And then there's another book the same week on the list and it sold like 6,000 copies. Yep. It's not yep. a bestseller list. It is, here's 10 books we think you should read this week list. <laughs> yeah, that's I agree. <laughs> hundred percent agree. So yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to ask about a little bit more about, um, you know, getting yourself and your brand out there. So sometimes, believe it or not, authors tend to be introverts. (laughs) Yeah. So you wrote a book called Conference Crushing. Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, network tips or that you could give writers who want to attend conferences, but maybe aren't that comfortable doing so? Yeah, for sure. So, well, okay. So that book, that was, that was actually my first book. The one I was talking about that the editor helped a lot. Yeah. It's only like 70 pages. It's, it's like a guide. And I would not say it's like my best work now. I'm 31 now. So it's, you know, it was, I was young when I read that. <laughs> but I still, it's solid if you are going to a conference and, you know, if you're introverted, which a lot of writers are. So one thing I did uh, when I was younger and I went to all these events is I would first uh, research who all the um, uh, speakers were because the speakers who were actually at the top of my list of who I wanted to network with, right? Like a lot of people go to conferences because there's like a speaker that they know or something, right? So that was my first thing. So I did enough research on all of them that if I did get the opportunity to talk to him there, I knew enough about him that I could spark a conversation. So I think that helps with confidence a lot, right? Like it, it's a lot easier to talk to somebody if you really kind of know who they are rather than going into it blindly. So doing legit research before. Um, also, when you're there, I he, this helps a lot. And I would say it's t- a little tough for me because I am naturally very outgoing, mm-hmm. but that book is a specific formula on how to maximize like conferences specifically. But I think focusing on listening and I think a lot of people, what they do is in their mind, they're especially introverts because they get nervous. So they're so focused on what their response is going to be. They don't even really fully hear what the person's saying. And what I try to do, because I I have a podcast myself, I've done about 2000 interviews and I don't have any uh, questions before that I come up with. It's it's I do a tiny bit of research before, and then I hop on the call and I just ask questions and I fully listen. And then from that, naturally, because I'm truly curious and interested, the next question kind of naturally flows out of me. So I think that's the biggest advice I could give on is like, try to get out of your head and just really be curious about the people you're talking to and you will naturally be able to have a good flowing conversation. Yeah, I think that's just good life advice in general, right? We tend to do more thinking about our responses than listening. So yeah, yeah, that's a good tip. And you know, introverts are usually good listeners. So yeah. <laughs> there you, okay, there you go. And last thing I'll just say on conferences, or if you want to uh, get in like a good relationship with people like handwritten letters, I know a lot of people say that, but I've done this at so many events and it works. Like I did at one event, there was like 15 speakers. It was a two day event on the first event. They all spoke. And then the second event, everybody was like networking. And I woke up the second morning at like three or 4 a.m. And I wrote 15 personalized letters to all the speakers and gave them to them. And I'm still friends with some of them to this day. And that was when I was like 19, 20 years ago, almost. That's cool. So what did you put in these handwritten letters? Just that you appreciate them or you just want to keep in contact or what was the content? So it was based off, it it was actually what I learned from their talk. And then if there was something that I like wanted to follow up with them about or ask them, I put it in there too. And these were like pretty long. I mean, like a full page front and back handwritten with a pen. And, and it, so I really listened to their talks and then I basically shared what I learned, how it was going to impact me, like how I was going to implement it. And then a kind of follow-up of like, Hey, I think I could help you with this or let's, you know, something specific. 
Uh, so yeah, very well thought out, not like uh, general in any way. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'll have to work on my penmanship before I try that one because nobody's going <laughs> to be reading my handwritten letters. <laughs> oh, yeah. I will say I haven't done handwriting letters in a while. And <laughs> dude, my handwriting now, it's like you can't even read it. So, yeah. Right. I'm like, what is spelling? I don't remember this thing I used to I know. know. <laughs> what do we do without like Grammarly or something, right? Yeah. It's it'll be like copy number five of this handwritten letter <laughs> <laughs> all night with cramped hands. That's awesome. Give them all the copies. That would actually be really funny. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I tried so hard. Yeah. You know, you make a friend for sure if you give them five copies of a letter that you tried so hard. Effort matters the most, I think. So earlier you were talking a little bit about your podcast zone. You've done 2,000 plus interviews. It's called The Tyler Wagner Show. Can you yep. tell us a little bit uh, about it and what listeners can expect? Yeah, so I really... um I kind of modeled it after uh, Joe Rogan. I listen to him a lot and it's not as long as his. the way I describe it. It's like Joe Rogan, but one fifth of the time. So they're normally <laughs> like 45 minutes or so. Um, but, you know, Rogan's is like three hours or something. Um, but really, I just interview people that I'm like really curious about and that I want to. So, for example, I was uh, I, I wanted to this was probably like four or five years ago. My business had started to do like very well and I had a lot of leftover capital and I was really starting to like figure out investing. Right. So I was like, all right, well, I, you know, I, I feel like I kind of have like, uh, like growing a business and making money down, but I don't have investing down yet. Like I would not consider myself even a rookie. Like I'm just, I don't understand that I'm not good at it. So I was like, I'm just going to have my team reach out to the top investors out there and interview all of them so that I can learn. So that's kind of my show is like anything I'm curious about or somebody I'm curious about, my team will reach out and we'll interview them. Cool. That's basically what it is. <laughs> I like that. So kind of just general interest, talking to people and just sharing yeah. what you're learning with your listeners. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you have anything that um, was like a standout that you learned something amazing? Um, Hold on. Let me think more of what I'd say. And I've learned a lot, but what when you ask that, what stuck out is more the relationships I've built from it. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing I've I've personally got from the podcast is like, you know, we've interviewed some really we've interviewed Gary Vaynerchuk. That was one of our biggest interviews. That was pretty cool. And like that was because we had interviewed a woman like maybe a hundred episodes prior to his, and she happened to have a contact uh with him and she reached out and got me an interview. Right. So the biggest thing from it is I do learn, but it's also just like when you interview 2000 people, you have 2000 new friends, you could say, and that opens so many doors that you can't even imagine. It's so crazy. So that's the biggest thing to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's just a, a great takeaway from the whole thing is, you know, making these genuine connections with people, talking to people, uh, listening to people can't go wrong right that'll serve you well in life a hundred percent that's i think if that would be one piece of advice i'd say is like be open to connecting with as many people as possible because you don't you don't know what's behind that door and if you connect with a lot of people then there's a lot of potential doors right and you can help them they can help you you could start another business with that like the opportunities are endless and i think if you if you stay too sheltered you you won't have those opportunities. So you definitely want to connect with a lot of people. Fantastic. And you may have already given this answer, but the last question that we usually ask everyone is if you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring writers, what would it be? Oh, okay, cool. Let me, oh, there's a lot actually. Um, but I, I know you want one. So <clears throat> I would you want to give, a, you know, your top three. I'm, I'm, I'm not picky. <laughs> oh, okay, cool, cool. Well, I'd say it's like kind of at each stage of the process. So I would say for the writing part, don't don't worry about perfection, right? Like just allow your first draft to be as messy as it needs to be. Just the, the idea is just to finish the first draft and then work with what you have from there, right? And I think a lot of times what authors do is they're like, oh, I, I need to know my title before I write my intro and I need my intro before I write. And it's so chronological and orderly. That's not that's not how art works. Like art is messy. And then you, and then you 
carve away the crap and then you're left with what's there. <laughs> like that's what <laughs> So that's what I'd say. And then on the publishing, you know, really do the research on like what type of publishing um, route do you want to take and make sure it's one that's aligned with your goals and go down that path. Right. Um, and then, and take the time to do the research. That's the the lesson there. Not just be like, oh, I, I want a traditional publisher because it's cool. It's like, well, really figure out why you want, or like what is entailed with each one. And then the marketing, I would say, if you have a budget, you know, and you, and it's the book that you want to go all in on, hire a firm, whether it's mine or somebody else's or PR firms or whatever, and really give your book a chance. And if you don't have the budget, then literally, you know, get out there and put in the effort to get the book in as many hands as possible. Because I think there's a lot of books out there that actually could have gone like viral, but they were never read by enough people to begin with. And to not know if your book could have made it, I couldn't really live with that. (laughs) So (laughs) you got to give it a chance. All right. So I just wanted to start um, talking about something that indie authors talk about a lot, and that is building relationships, collaborating with other people who have complementary genres, services, topics. I think that's something like that you need to keep top of mind. How can you reciprocate promotions? How can you help each other? What did you think about what Tyler had to say about that? I love working with authors. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite thing. Like, honestly, the, the, the thing is uh, networking to me with other authors is one of the smartest things that you can do as an indie author. It's the way that you can have actual connections with each other instead of just cold calling or cold emailing by going to certain events, especially, uh, and then being able to reach out to them when the time comes to ask like, Hey, if, if I can promote this, or if you can help me promote this, I'll help you promote that. Like that it's that shared community because the thing I hate the most is the, the author that believes that this is all done in a vacuum and that my sales are lost if your books get sold. I, I, that's not for me. That's not the type of person I'm interested in. Yeah. It's so against the grain though, right? Because authors are are such major introverts, you know, like we, you go to your very first writer's conference and the last thing you want to do is just walk up to strangers and just start chatting up your, your career or your book. Um, but honestly, that's really what you need to do. Right. And the funny thing is once you do that, you walk up to that group of strangers and you introduce yourself, you find that they're basically the exact same you know, they're in the same situation you are. Um, they don't really want to be there talking about themselves or their books either, but you know, then, then you kind of open up and, and, and it happens, but, um, yeah, that's, it's tough, especially the, the, at the very beginning. Yeah. I, I, I've more or less made a career out of this very concept of, con, you know, connecting with authors and with the, uh, the service providers for the author community. And, um, also I do a lot of connecting the authors to others as well. Like I, I, yeah, I've found that that's a great way to, to not, you know, part of my, but part of my business, like everything I do is, is a author service outside of my own writing. So that's part of that. But I also just kind of enjoy making those connections. So I will say if you're an author and you're at a conference or something, uh, you're feeling nervous about it, find me. I will introduce you to everybody there. We do appreciate extroverts who adopt us. Like, yeah, that's much appreciated. <laughs> I'm more of a high functioning introvert, but Yeah. <laughs> But I did like what Tyler said about the handwritten notes too, which is also tied to that, you know, help or reciprocation. Have you ever done that? Like if you're shy, handwrite letters. Give them I love to nobody would be able to read that. Uh, well, that's why I said mine too. I'll no. type it maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I, I haven't done the actual letter thing. I've thought about that and I like that, but I have done um, thank you cards, handwritten thank you cards a lot. Uh, now I haven't had a whole lot of people get back to me. I've had a few, but like not, not none of the success that like he had with those letters, but I think it's a good idea. I mean, I th- uh, you know, if you go to a conference, especially you get all these speakers, like they don't get any real feedback from, from trust me. I mean, when I do talks and things, I don't get any solid feedback from anybody other than maybe the first five minutes after the talk. But if you, if someone sent me a handwritten note saying, look, this is what I learned. This is how I'm going to use it. This is what I want to do. And here's a question I have like that person would get my hundred percent attention for sure. 
And if I've they gave you five copies. I always get home from these conferences and I've got like a, a fistful of business cards and I usually don't remember, you know, who they right. are or why they gave them to me. Um, the last conference I went to, I, I kind of forced myself to just write a little note on the back of each one, um, you know, because I always tell myself I'm going to remember why this person handed me their card. But when you've got 50 of them or 100 of them, when you get home, you, you don't remember. So I did that. And then I tried to reach out to as many of them as I could by email. And it, it definitely does help. It's, it's a lot of extra work. But like Kevin said, if you go that extra mile, you know, very few people are actually doing it. Um, so it, it kind of gives you an edge. I also liked what Tyler said about editors. Like you have to find a good editor, but it has to be the right editor, someone who has done what you do or enjoys what yeah. you do. Any any tips on finding a good editor, a good fit? I mean, I, I know when I first went out to find one, I, I took one short story and I sent it off to a bunch of different ones, like 20 or 30 different ones. And I had them all edit that same short story. And then I evaluated the feedback I got from, from mm. them. Um, I think it's important if you do something like that to use the same writing sample with everybody because you're going to find that they all have different styles. They've all got different techniques. Um, at least this way, they're all comparing, you know, apples to apples. Um, I think that's helpful. I, I think the good news is in today's world, you know, like we just had a huge amount of layoffs at Penguin Random House and some of the big <laughs> publishers. A lot of those editors are out there freelancing right now. You know, so people that have 10, 20 years worth of experience working on these big titles are available to you and at reasonable prices. Um, those are the ones that, that I seek out. And I, I really think a lot of other authors should do because they're they're out there. Yeah, that's true. You'd be surprised. That's good advice. Yeah. yeah I think that if you're new or newer, it's good money spent if you get a developmental editor first. That'll really tear into that story or have a friend like JD that's been in this business a long time. You know, I go back to Jack Carr when he was writing Terminal List. He's kind of adopted by Brad Thor and he kept on giving it to him. And Brad Thor is like, it's not ready yet. And he'd be all excited and he'd give it back to him. It's like, nope, not yet. Nope, not yet. Yeah. And then finally, like after a year of bouncing back and forth, and he's like, okay, now this is ready. You know, so if you don't have a Brad Thor or a J.D. Barker, you know, hire a developmental editor that you trust. And I think that would be very beneficial for a newer, newer author. Right. Just to clarify, this is not an invitation to send J.D. all your manuscripts. <laughs> he already said he can't read. <laughs> oh, no, he loves I it. All him all he likes it when you pop into the house, too. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> um we're all actually just in different portions of the house. There you go. Yes, yeah, we're exactly. all just hiding. In we're in the house. <laughs> uh, what did you think about what Tyler said about the importance of number of reviews for ad conversion? He was suggesting like a thousand is kind of the magic number. You know, it's funny. I, I paused the interview and I went and looked at some of my own books. And I think Fourth Monkey probably has the most reviews out there. It's got like 40,000 on Goodreads and somewhere around 10 or 20 or something on Amazon. Um, you know, and, and it's still holding steady in the, you know, the, you know, probably like the six to 10,000 range or so on the Amazon store. Um, and I, I think he's right. I think it all plays into that. I mean, these are algorithms, right? They're, they're computer programs. Somebody sat down and said, A plus B equals C, then you need to put it here. Um, you know, so I'm sure they're using the number of reviews. You know, the other thing that they're probably looking at is how many people load up that page and actually don't buy. You know, those kind of things hurt you too. You know, they, they yeah. track absolutely every, every stat. Um, I've been spending a lot of time over the last week, you know, with this new book coming out, talking to companies that that uh, grab data from TikTok and Instagram, um, basically sell it back to people like me that want to target influencers. And it is incredibly surprising just how much detail they actually have on every single person that's not only posting, but um, reviewing, looking at those posts. Um, there, there is absolutely nothing private about that process. They, they track everything. And I'm sure, you know, Amazon's got the deepest pockets. They're tracking that on a whole other level. They have all those emails. Uh, I thought it was interesting what he said too about ad conversion. Like, don't waste your money if you have under 100 reviews because they're not going to convert. So that was interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't I, know. I think I've, that's, I've, that's, oh, go ahead. Go Kevin. ahead, JD. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I, I think that's, if it's your first book, that's probably true. But, you know, if, if it's like your fifth book and your other ones have done well on Amazon, like all that data is, is right. included too. So, I, you know, it's, it, it's all, it's all tied together. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would necessarily recommend authors use the, the number of reviews they have as any sort of limiter to their marketing strategy. I think it does impact the type of marketing you do. Um, 
You know, like I would early in my career, I would do things like I don't think I ever did like a Kirkus review, but I did a lot of similar things where I paid for like pro reviews and things like that. And they didn't really they didn't really move the needle for me. And I think it may have been in part because that was the only review and everyone knows you pay for those, you know, or, or everyone just assumes you do. So I, I do think if you're going to try to if your marketing is going to depend on that sort of word of mouth or that sort of discovery tool. Uh, having more reviews is probably mandatory, but I wouldn't necessarily limit like ad spend or anything like that based on, you know, oh, I have less than a thousand reviews in this book. I mean, how else are you going to get those, right? Those reviews, yeah. you know, I totally agree. And I, I, I do, I see what he's saying. We give it away to, you know, as many people as you possibly can. I'm fine with that approach as well for the reviews, but I, I'm only fine with that. If you're not counting on this one book being, you know, your breakout or something like you've got to you've got to be aimed at more books at least a series or something uh because if you only have the one if you're only ever going to have the one it's not worth giving it away to everybody just let it grow organically yeah and that's <laughs> yeah. been an indie strategy right is that having that first yeah. book 99 cents or free so that you can make on the spend through make money and you know he's just saying right. whether your book is free 99 cents or if you're trad and it's 20 dollars you just have to get it to as many people as you can. So, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There, there is another way to access that group that I think a lot of indie authors don't look at, and that's um, NetGalley. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all the traditional publishers use it. It's, it's kind of cost prohibitive. It can be anywhere from five hundred to a thousand dollars to get your book out there. Um, but like, I, I just I, my new book is out there right now. I, I signed up for six months. Um, you know, I, I think it's got like fifty to sixty or so reviews so far through NetGalley. But there's a very small pool of books available on there, so you've got a lot more people looking at that group, mm -hmm. which means more people are going to discover your book. And the nice thing about it is when that book goes live on Amazon, all of those reviews, those people know to, to go out there and, and hit, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all those various sites and republish those reviews. So you can come out of the gate with 50 to 100 to 200 reviews uh, straight off the bat for, you know, a spend that's somewhere between 500 and $1,000. Yeah, and those huge. are legit reviews. Those are reviewers or librarians. You know, they're, they're people that, you know, are respected in the industry and other people follow. Um, so that will lead to other people discovering your books. I, I, I personally lean towards something like NetGalley before I go out and, and buy a list or pay somebody to sure. put my book in front of, you know, some unknown large group. Yeah, that's a good tip. Sometimes indies don't realize that you can get your book on NetGalley. So that's that's awesome. Anything else that struck anyone about uh, Tyler's interview that you wanted to discuss? One thing he didn't discuss was newsletters. How valuable those are for authors. You know, I'm indie. Well, he did. He and talked about getting on really newsletters and getting on the ones that, yeah, that you can spend for. Yeah, he said that was oh, okay. vital. My bad. I didn't hear him swaps. Okay. I, th I think at this point, newsletters are kind of a given. Like it's something yeah. you are required to have if you want to make it in this industry. If you don't, you're long. not going to get anywhere. You, you need a newsletter. You need an email list. Yep. Um, like that's just kind of a, a given. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's you know, basically, I, I think if a couple of years ago, that was, you know, not necessarily the, the, the thing. But, you know, nowadays you have to absolutely have to have one. Um, yeah. And I think he's focusing on basically what you have to do beyond that in order to, to keep going. And you can build that list at booksweeps.com. Okay. Uh, the thing that I would bring up, though, sliding right past that, that blatant self-promotion there. Um, the thing that I, one of the things he kind of brought up that I thought was interesting was the idea of the lists and like the New York Times list. You asked him, you know, is it still possible for indies to get on that list? And, uh, and it is, I, he's right. I think it is technically possible. I don't think his assessment that it would cost you like half a million dollars to get on it is entirely accurate, but I, I'm willing to give on that one. But I'm really curious, like, is it even worth the the time and effort and energy for, for indies to try to get on these lists? Does that, does that help, you know, move anything for them at all? I can tell you yes and yes. Um, okay. So, so here's the thing. First of all, I, I, I tend to pull the, go to this one a lot. So Dean Koontz, you know, like he's obviously been around forever. I've known the guy for a while now. Um, he's been on an Amazon imprint for about the last four or five years. Every book that he's put out through Amazon has been ignored by the New York times list. Mm. Um, I can guarantee he's selling a lot of books and you can see those sales numbers. You know, every time he releases something, he's, he's selling, you know, just as well as he did before, if not better. Um, uh, but they're not including him because he's on an Amazon imprint. Um, so there's definitely, you know, a little back, you know, backdoor type stuff going on there, things that they're not telling anybody about. Yeah. Um, when you actually do have that moniker, when you can say you're a New York Times bestseller, it does open doors. 
um, you know, b- bookstores, you know, in particular, like they, they will give you, you know, you've got a lot better shot of getting through there. I've seen my books go into airport bookstores, you know, since I've, I've gotten that. Um, so it, so it's worth getting, but it, it's definitely not something you can just chase and get. Um, his dollar amount, unfortunately, is, is pretty close. I mean, you're going to have to spend six figures or more, you know, hundred to two hundred thousand dollars to have a shot of competing with the, the books that are actually hitting that list because of who you're competing against. There's 15 slots. Um, you know, all the big publishers want them and they are spending that kind of money in order to get there. Your only other alternative is to somehow go viral, you know, yeah. so some type of TikTok thing happens or, or whatever. Word of mouth can get you there just as fast as spending those dollars. Um, but unfortunately, you can't predict you know, how that's how that's going to play out. All right. Awesome. And with that, JD, who is up next week? Uh, this one's going to be a lot of fun too. It's Michael and Robin Sullivan. So Michael is—he's a New York Times bestselling author who's successfully published in the trad world, the indie world. Um, he's done quite a bit on Kickstarter as well. Um, the last time I saw him speak, I was at the Writers Digest conference, and it was about maybe four or five months before I actually got my first real publishing deal. Um, and he gave a phenomenal presentation where he just dug into Kickstarter and just what it takes to basically sell a book as an indie um, on incredible levels. Um, um, and his wife is right there with him. Like she's kind of the, the maintainer of his Excel spreadsheets, which are the heart of everything that that he does. Um, but they they are going to provide some insane data. So if if you listen to one episode, you know, of the show per year, like this is the one you want to you want to listen to, and make sure you have your notepad handy. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to want to miss this one. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.